Chapter Six, Part Two of the Riddle of the Universe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. The Riddle of the Universe by Ernst Haeckel, translated by Joseph McCabe. Chapter Six, Part Two. In proportion as the various branches of the human tree of knowledge have developed during the century, and the methods of the different sciences have been perfected, the desire has grown to make them exact, that is, to make the study of phenomena as purely empirical as possible, and to formulate the laws that result as clearly as the circumstances permit, if possible, mathematically. The latter is, however, only feasible in a small province of human knowledge, especially in those sciences in which there is question of measurable quantities, in mathematics in the first place, and to a greater or less extent in astronomy, mechanics, and a great part of physics and chemistry. Hence these studies are called exact sciences in the narrower sense. It is, however, productively only of error to call all the physical sciences exact, and oppose them to the historical, mental, and moral sciences. The greater part of physical science can no more be treated as an exact science than history can. This is especially true of biology and of its subsidiary branch, psychology. As psychology is a part of physiology, it must, as a general rule, follow the chief methods of that science. It must establish the facts of psychic activity by empirical methods as much as possible, by observation and experiment, and it must then gather the laws of the mind by inductive and deductive inferences from its observations, and formulate them with the utmost distinctness. But, for obvious reasons, it is rarely possible to formulate them mathematically. Such a procedure is only profitable in one section of the physiology of the senses, it is not practicable in the greater part of cerebral physiology. One small section of physiology which seems amenable to the exact method of investigation has been carefully studied for the last twenty years and raised to the position of a separate science under the title of psychophysics. Its founder, the physiologist Theodore Fechner and Ernst Heinrich Weber, first of all closely investigated the dependence of sensations on the external stimuli that act on the organs of sense and particularly the quantitative relation between the strength of the stimulus and the intensity of the sensation they found that a certain minimum strength of stimulus is requisite for the excitement of a sensation and that a given stimulus must be varied to a definite amount before there is any perceptible change in the sensation for the highest sensations of sight hearing and pressure the law holds good that their variations are proportionate to the changes in the strength of the stimulus from this empirical law of weber fechner inferred by mathematical operations his fundamental law of psychophysics according to which the intensity of a sensation increases in arithmetical progression the strength of the stimulus in geometrical progression. However, Fechner's law and other psychophysical laws are frequently contested, 
and their exactness is called into question. In any case, modern psychophysics has fallen far short of the great hopes with which it was greeted twenty years ago. The field of its applicability is extremely limited. One important result of its work is that it has proved the applications of physical laws in one, if only a small branch of the life of the soul, an application which was long ago postulated on principle by the materialist psychology for the whole province of mental life. In this, as in many other branches of physiology, the exact method has proved inadequate and of little service. It is the ideal to aim at everywhere, but it is unattainable in most cases. Much more profitable are the comparative and genetic methods. The striking resemblance of man's psychic activity to that of the higher animals, especially our nearest relatives among the mammals, is a familiar fact. Most uncivilized races still make no material distinction between the two sets of mental processes, as the well-known animal fables, the old legends, and the idea of the transmigration of souls prove. Even most of the philosophers of classical antiquity shared the same conviction, and discovered no essential qualitative difference, but merely a quantitative one, between the soul of man and that of the brute. Plato himself, who was the first to draw a fundamental distinction between soul and body, made one and the same soul, or idea, pass through a number of animal and human bodies in his theory of metempsychosis. It was Christianity, intimately connecting faith in immortality with faith in God, that emphasized the essential difference of the immortal soul of man from the mortal soul of the brute. In the dualistic philosophy, the idea prevailed principally through the influence of Descartes, 1643. He contended that man alone had a true soul, and consequently, sensation and free will, and that the animals were mere automats or machines without will or sensibility. Ever since the majority of psychologists, including even Kant, have entirely neglected the mental life of the brute and restricted psychological research to man, human psychology, mainly introspective, dispensed with a fruitful comparative method, and so remained at that lower point of view which human morphology took before Cuvier raised it to the position of a philosophic science by the foundation of comparative anatomy. Scientific interest in the psychic activity of the brute was revived in the second half of the last century, in connection with the advance of systematic zoology and physiology. A strong impulse was given to it by the work of Raimarush. General Observations on the Instinct of Animals, Hamburg, 1760. At the same time, a deeper scientific investigation had been facilitated by the thorough reform of physiology by Johannes Muller, this distinguished biologist, having a comprehensive knowledge of the whole field of organic nature of morphology and of physiology, introduced the exact methods of observation and experiment into the whole province of physiology, and, with consummate skill, combined them with the comparative methods. He applied them not only to mental life in the broader sense, to speech, senses, and brain action, but to all the other phenomena of life. The sixth book of his Manual of Human Physiology treats specially of the life of the soul 
and contains eighty pages of important psychological observations. During the last forty years, a great number of works on comparative animal psychology have appeared, principally occasioned by the great impulse which Darwin gave in 1859 by his work on The Origin of Species and by the application of the idea of evolution to the province of psychology. The more important of these works we owe to Romanis and Sir J. Lubbock in England, to W. Wundt, L. Buchner, G. Schneider, Fritz Schulzer, and Karl Gruss in Germany, to Alfred Espinas and E. Jourdain in France, and to Tito Vignoli in Italy. In Germany, Wilhelm Wundt of Leipzig is considered to be the ablest living psychologist. He has the inestimable advantage over most other philosophers of a thorough zoological, anatomical, and physiological education. Formerly assistant and pupil of Helmholtz, Wundt had earlier accustomed himself to follow the application of the laws of physics and chemistry through the whole field of physiology, and consequently in the sense of Johannes Muller in psychology as a subsection of the latter. Starting from this point of view, Wundt published his valuable Lectures on Human and Animal Psychology in 1863. He proved, as he himself tells us in the preface, that the theatre of the most important psychic processes is in the unconscious soul, and he affords us a view of the mechanism which, in the unconscious background of the soul, manipulates the impressions which arise from the external stimuli. What seems to me, however, of special importance and value in Wundt's work is that he extends the law of the persistence of force for the first time to the psychic world and makes use of a series of facts of electrophysiology by way of demonstration. Thirty years afterwards, 1892, Wundt published a second, much abridged and entirely modified edition of his work. The important principles of the first edition are entirely abandoned in the second, and the monistic is exchanged for a purely dualistic standpoint. Wundt himself says in the preface to the second edition that he has emancipated himself from the fundamental errors of the first and that he learned many years ago to consider the work a sin of his youth. It weighed on him as a kind of crime from which he longed to free himself as soon as possible. In fact, the most important systems of psychology are completely opposed to each other in the two editions of Wundt's famous observations. In the first edition, he is purely monistic and materialistic. In the second edition, purely dualistic and spiritualistic. In the one, psychology is treated as a physical science on the same laws as the whole of physiology, of which it is only a part. Thirty years afterwards, he finds psychology to be a spiritual science with principles and objects entirely different from those of physical science. This conversion is most clearly expressed in his principle of psychophysical parallelism, according to which every psychic event has a corresponding physical change. But the two are completely independent and are not in any natural causal connection. This complete dualism of body and soul, of nature and mind, naturally gave the liveliest satisfaction to the prevailing school philosophy, and was acclaimed by it as an important advance, especially seeing that it came from a distinguished scientist who had previously adhered to the opposite system of monism. As I myself continue, after more than forty years' study, in this narrow position, 
and have not been able to free myself from it in spite of all my efforts i must naturally consider the youthful sin of the young physiologist wundt to be a correct knowledge of nature and energetically defend it against the antagonistic view of the old philosopher wundt the entire change of philosophical principles which we find in wundt as we found in kant virchow dubois raymond karl ernst bayer and others is very interesting in their youth these able and talented scientists embrace the whole field of biological research in a broad survey and make strenuous efforts to find a unifying natural basis for their knowledge in later years they have found that this is not completely attainable and so they entirely abandon the idea in extenuation of these psychological metamorphoses they can naturally plead that in their youth they overlooked the difficulties of the great task and misconceived the true goal with the maturer judgment of age and the accumulation of experience they were convinced of their errors and discovered the true path to the source of truth on the other hand it is possible to think that great scientists approached their task with less prejudice and more energy in their earlier years that their vision is clearer and their judgment purer the experiences of later years sometimes have the effect not of enriching but of disturbing the mind and with old age there comes a gradual decay of the brain just as happens in all other organs in any case this change of views is in itself an instructive psychological fact because like many other forms of change of opinion it shows that the highest psychic functions are subject to profound individual changes in the course of life like all the other vital processes for the profitable construction of comparative psychology it is extremely important not to confine the critical comparison to man and the brute in general but to put side by side the innumerable gradations of their mental activity only thus can we attain a clear knowledge of the long scale of psychic development which runs unbroken from the lowest unicellular forms of life up to the mammals and to the man at their head but even within the limits of our own race such gradations are very noticeable and the ramifications of the psychic ancestral tree are very numerous the psychic difference between the crudest savage of the lowest grade and the most perfect specimen of the highest civilization is colossal much greater than is commonly supposed by the due appreciation of this fact especially in the latter half of the century the anthropology of the uncivilized races whites has received a strong support and comparative ethnography has come to be considered extremely important for psychological purposes unfortunately the enormous quantity of raw material of this science has not yet been treated in a satisfactory critical manner what confused and mystic ideas still prevail in this department may be seen for instance in the folke gedanke of the famous traveller adolf bastian who though a prolific writer merely turns out a hopeless mass of uncritical compilation and confused speculation the most neglected of all psychological methods even up to the present day is the evolution of the soul yet this little frequented path is precisely the one that leads us most quickly and securely through the gloomy primeval forest of psychological prejudices dogmas and errors to a clear insight into many of the chief psychic problems
as i did in the other branch of organic evolution i again put before the reader the two great branches of the science which i differentiated in eighteen sixty six ontogeny and phylogeny the ontogeny or embryonic development of the soul individual or biontic psychogeny investigates the gradual and hierarchic development of the soul in the individual and seeks to learn the laws by which it is controlled for a great part of the life of the mind a good deal has been done in this direction for centuries rational pedagogy must have set itself the task at an early date of the theoretical study of the gradual development and formative capacity of the young mind that was committed to it for education and formation most pedagogues however were idealistic or dualistic philosophers and so they went to work with all the prejudices of the spiritualistic psychology it is only in the last few decades that this dogmatic tendency has been largely superseded even in the school by scientific methods we now find a greater concern to apply the chief laws of evolution even in the discussion of the soul of the child the raw material of the child's soul is already qualitatively determined by heredity from parents and ancestors education has a noble task of bringing it to a perfect maturity by intellectual instruction and moral training that is by adaptation wilhelm prior was the first to lay the foundation of our knowledge of the early psychic development in his interesting work on the mind of the child much is still to be done in the study of the later stages and metamorphoses of the individual soul and once more the correct critical application of the biogenetic law is providing a guiding star to the scientific mind a new and fertile epoch of higher development dawned for psychology and all other biological sciences when charles darwin applied the principles of evolution to them forty years ago the seventh chapter of his epoch-making work on the origin of species is devoted to instinct it contains the valuable proof that the instinct of animals are subject like all other vital processes to the general laws of historic development the special instincts of particular species were formed by adaptation and the modifications thus acquired were handed on to posterity by heredity in their formation and preservation natural selection plays the same part as in the transformation of every other physiological function darwin afterwards developed this fundamental thought in a number of works showing that the same laws of mental evolution hold good throughout the entire organic world and not less in man than in the brute and even in the plant hence the unity of the organic world which is revealed by the common origin of its members applies also to the entire province of psychic life from the simplest unicellular organism up to man to george romanus we owe the further development of darwin's psychology and its special application to the different sections of psychic activity unfortunately his premature decease prevented the completion of the great work which was to reconstruct every section of comparative psychology on the lines of monistic evolution the two volumes of this work which were completed are among the most valuable productions of psychological literature for conformably to the principles of our modern monistic research his first care was to collect and arrange all the important facts which have been empirically established in the field of comparative psychology 
in the course of centuries. In the second place, these facts are tested with an objective criticism and systematically distributed. Finally, such rational conclusions are drawn from them on the chief general questions of psychology as are in harmony with the fundamental principles of modern monism. The first volume of Romanus's work bears the title of Mental Evolution in the Animal World. It presents in natural connection the entire length of the chain of psychic evolution in the animal world, from the simplest sensations and instincts of the lowest animals to the elaborate phenomena of consciousness and reason in the highest. It contains also a number of extracts from a manuscript which Darwin left on instinct, and a complete collection of all that he wrote in the province of psychology. The second and more important volume of Romanus's work treats of mental evolution in man and the origin of human faculties. The distinguished psychologist gives a convincing proof in it that the psychological barrier between man and the brute has been overcome. Man's power of conceptual thought and of abstraction has been gradually evolved from the non-conceptual stages of thought and ideation in the nearest related mammals. Man's highest mental powers, reason, speech and conscience, have arisen from the lower stages of the same faculties in our primate ancestors, the simiae and the prosimiae. Man has no single mental faculty which is his exclusive prerogative. His whole psychic life differs from that of the nearest related mammals only in degree, and not in kind, quantitatively, not qualitatively. I recommend those of my readers who are interested in these momentous questions of psychology to study the profound work of Romanus. I am completely at one with him and Darwin in almost all their views and convictions. Wherever an apparent discrepancy is found between these authors and my earlier productions, it is either a case of imperfect expression on my part or an unimportant difference in application of principle. For the rest, it is characteristic of this science of ideas that the most eminent philosophers hold entirely antagonistic views on its fundamental notions. End of Part 2 of Chapter 6 Read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama